So get your Bibles open. I know we've got it's been over a month of pause from Ephesians, and so some of you are just now picking up with us here in chapter six, the final chapter of Ephesians on page nine seventy nine. If you have a Bible there in the pew, or I'm sure you can get to it on your devices. It's toward the back half of the book. If you brought in your your own Bible, Ephesians chapter six. Before I read that passage, I was sitting in a short week, as we probably many of us had a short week, so we're coming back, or traveling, or celebrating the New Year's, and so on Thursday morning, not having written the sermon except for maybe in my mind and in my heart, I sat down with my kids at breakfast and asked them if they would help me write it. Knowing the passage, I said, would you help me write the sermon? I don't think I've ever asked them that, although they do help me write the sermon every week without knowing it. It gives me plenty of opportunity to exercise uh, God's Word and to grow in it and applications. I, I don't use them all because, you know, they're already pastor's kids, so they're going to be messed up. But pray for them. So I asked them, they, they seemed a little surprised and skeptical at first. I said, well, let me, let me just read you the passage. So I said, here it is, Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. What? No! Honor your father and mother. Oh, this is the first commandment with a promise, you know, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Silent processing, wheels spinning. Then I went on to verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ha ha, you can't get angry at us. Hmm. Not exactly what the word says but they did exactly what I asked them to do. They helped me start to write the sermon. They reminded me how naturally we only hear what we want to hear and how we misunderstand God's Word without meditating on it and learning it. So, for example, all of you just misunderstood verse 1, right? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Okay, maybe not every one of you, but most of you are thinking about someone else right now. You're thinking about your own kids, if you have young kids, especially elementary kids in your home, or you're thinking about those other unruly children who don't obey their parents. You know the ones. We all know them. No one here. Just those, those others out there, your extended family, your friends, your neighbors, kids at school. How come our first response isn't to think of ourselves? We are all but children in too many ways than one. But whether you're living in your parents' home whether your parents are even alive anymore, this verse is first to be received by each one of us. How are you honoring your parents? Certainly if your parents are no longer living, obeying them is a little different. But the honor piece continues. As you proclaim their legacy, as you live it on, as you forgive their weaknesses and faults, as you continue to express love to them in what they've equipped you with as you pass on to the next generations. So will we pause at least and put ourselves in the seat of instruction, humble enough to admit that really we're not all that different than even the children that we are trying to raise. We have a good Father who we can honor, that it may go well for us, that we may live long in the land. And we've mis- misunderstood that verse too. <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get there. This sermon is mostly about becoming the children, the child, and then the parent that God has created us to be. 
And you, many of you, in fact, if you have young kids in your home, you're probably thinking, who cares about that? Tell me how to get my kids to obey and honor me. Yeah, and if I was making that promise, this room would be a lot more full today. But I will give you the perfect parenting guarantee as I titled this sermon. So hang in there. You'll get that at least. Let me pause though. And it's been about a month. So we do need to be reminded of the flow of this letter. And especially if you're coming in to this back into the series now in this new year. Paul's letter to Ephesians begins with three chapters of the gospel. He just hammers on the gospel. Here's who God is and what he's done. He's reminding the Ephesian church. And therefore, this is who you are. It's all about identity. Who they were in God because of what he had done through Christ. And for three chapters, he expounded on that and prayed for the church. And so if we just jump into the back half, chapters 4 through 6, which are instructions to the church of, How then should you live? Because of who God is and what He's done, this then is how you should live. And if we just pull out some pretty powerful verses and we just try to apply them, we may miss all the foundation that Paul had laid. And when he wrote a letter, he meant for it to be read in its entirety to a church or to a group of churches. And so even though we're walking through this because there's much to be gleaned and studied and dug into, we need to understand the full flow. When we come to a passage like, Children, obey your parents. If we like to take that and put it on our fridge for our kids to see, we're probably not laying the foundation well enough. Because that's just a commission, an instruction, if not a command. And so we need to look at the indicatives of our faith. What is true of us because of who God is. Before we just jump to the imperatives. This is what you must do. This is what it looks like to live it out. So we come to this passage and remember that it's also in the flow of what Paul has been saying in chapter 5. This is the first promise, command with a promise, Paul says. So he's speaking back to the Ten Commandments. He's reaching back to Exodus 20, when the Israelites received the law. And the law said, Honor your father and mother, that it may go well for you, and you you may live long in the land. And, And so we first need to understand the context of that. As if all of us haven't disobeyed and dishonored our parents. So shouldn't we have all died at a young age? And to say that someone who dies young hasn't obeyed their parents, well, it could be also true and not true at the same time. To think that those who live a long life means they were the perfect children, honoring and obeying. See, if we press the promise too far, we don't understand the context that it was given in. And generally, it was to God's people who were about to receive the promised land. A land flowing with milk and honey, it was described as. A land across the Jordan in the region of Judea. God had redeemed them out of Egypt and was sending them to this place. And He gave them these commissions and these guidelines, these rules, the law to follow. This is how it will go well for you. What what God was indicating there, which Paul picks up on here and picks up throughout his letter, is that for God... Family is kind of a big deal. It's an extreme value for God. Jesus is the one that teaches us to relate to God as Father. In fact, the word he uses, Abba. Abba, Father, is is more like the impersonal. Maybe in English, like the Daddy. Speak to God this way, like he's your Daddy. And that seems so blasphemous. It was on the ears of the Pharisees as well. 
And I think Jesus wanted it to strike them in that way. Because that's who God is. He's like that. He's like that to you. He's your daddy. You can come to him with anything. He loves you that deeply. He knows everything about you. Cry out to him in that way. Jesus teaches us to relate to God as Father. Paul picks up on that clearly in all of his letters. He calls us more often than not brothers and sisters, the family of God. One of the pictures of Jesus is that he is the groom, the bridegroom, that the church is the bride. Think about that family relationship, the family imagery, how, how intimate that those relationships are. So to dishonor the family, to dishonor children, obey your parents, honor them, to dishonor is to mar the image and the intention of God, our Father, who has created a family. So it's kind of a big deal. Paul takes that commandment from Exodus 20 given to the Israelites and now makes it general, saying the character of God has not changed. Family for him is still vital. You are the family of God. You are the household of God, he said in in chapter 2. You are but children. And so God will continue to bless and work in the family. Blessing moms and dads, children, as they trust and follow Him. It extends out to the church as the family. If not, that, that might be the primary image in mind for Paul. It could transform whole communities. If we are faithful to Him, if we would first trust and follow and obey and honor Him. So family is a big deal. Let's not misunderstand that context and press that promise, but receive it in the character of God. Yes, we have very clear commands to obey and honor our parents, every one of us, not just little children or children living in in the home of our parents. Fathers have a very clear call to train and instruct and discipline our children in the Lord. That term used for fathers is often used as fathers, but it can be used in a general way, often as I know the ESV will translate often men in a general way. That's the way that they spoke then. But today, meaning men and women, all peoples. It's just a masculine term. And Hebrews 11.23, I won't jump there, but that's that's a place in the ESV and in other translations that translate that very same word as parents. So it's inclusive of the whole. So this commission to fathers is likely meant to parents although I, I can't argue that Paul probably had in mind fathers, the responsibility of fathers raising up their kids and training them is significant. And it's still vital today. In that culture, like ours, although that's changing today more and more, but in that culture, uh, the mothers were raising up their kids and caring for them and training them. So for Paul to say to fathers, he's saying join in that. It's, it's your responsibility too. And so it's likely he has both in mind, and we need to understand that and receive it. The call is to both parents with the promise that God loves families so deeply, more than we ever can, that he will work with us and for us as we seek to parent. So how? How do we understand parenting? We don't deeply, if we don't deeply understand the why of how we're parenting, we'll quickly get into the weeds of just probably trying to create some form of tangible peace in our homes. And we can just move from moment to moment without having a big picture of what God has called fathers and mothers to in parenting. And so understand the why. While the promise of God 
is a reward that it may go well for you. The promise of, uh, of obeying as children. The promise to, to, for God to work with parents. But that's the result. That's not the why. The why is what Paul has been building in the whole first half of the letter. Because God has already poured out His grace. Because God the Father has already done it all. And He has loved you so deeply, you can receive and respond to who He is and what He's done in your parenting. You can represent Him in your parenting. In fact, that's all we are. Is ambassadors. Is, a, is, is missionaries in all of our contexts. What is an ambassador? When Paul says that in Corinthians, that we are ambassadors for Christ. What's the job of an ambassador? To represent the will and the word of their master. The one who sent them. They, they come with his authority, but it is limited. But they rep, represent him. An ambassador, if he wants to keep his job, he better represent accurately the word and the will of his master. And that's all we are. In all things. So even if you're not a parent, or you're your, your, your parenting has changed because kids are grown and out of the home. You are still called to represent God in all that you do. You are His ambassadors. Now as parents, we know that that is our, our task. To steward. To care for what God has entrusted to us. And to represent Him. We have authority, but it is ultimately limited. We have responsibility, but it is ultimately His above all. Remember that this whole section, as I hinted at, flows out of Ephesians 5.18 and following, where Paul said, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. We spent quite a bit of time on that, that language there. It actually would be, rightly be translated into English, be being filled with the Spirit, continually be filled with the Spirit. And then he lists a number of results of that. As you live being filled with the Spirit, this is what it looks like. You would Address one another with joy. I'm summarizing that. You would be filled with joy and making a melody in your heart. You would give thanks in all circumstances, even the hard ones. You would submit one to another and honor one another. Then he moves on to husbands and wives. That's kind of where we left off back in November. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love and honor and submit to your husbands. And now he moves into parenting, children, fathers, Next, we'll move into household servants. When we hear the word slaves, that triggers something in us because of our history in this country. It was very different in that culture. I'll get into that maybe next week. We'll see. But all of this could be categorized as household rules, if you will, out of the flow of being filled with the Holy Spirit. How could we possibly honor less than deserving parents? Parents, how could we possibly Love and raise faithfully and patiently less than deserving children by being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's our only hope. So the why is what God has done for us. The how is in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because that's the only hope that we got. By His help and His strength. You know, as soon as you as a parent think, we've got this. You don't got it. Right? We have one of those moments in a simple way this week. Our kids were in the other room. They're playing a game together nicely. They're sharing. 
They're taking turns. They're speaking to one another with kind words. We're looking at Catherine and I look at each other. We just stopped short of high-fiving and like patting each other on the back. Look what we did. Then there's like silence, you know, that unusual silence that precedes, ow, stop that, give that, quit it. I know this is shocking for you to hear that pastor's kids could behave like this ever. So brace yourselves. What's also going to be shocking for you to hear is that we are less than perfect parents. At best, we've been good parents with way too much poor to absolute failure mixed in. Thank God we live under His grace. And so I hope you're also encouraged by that. What if, what if in fact we had been perfect parents for the last eight years? Would that scenario I described have been any different? I don't think so. What if in fact we had been poor to awful parents for eight years with a little bit of good or great sprinkled in at moments? Would the scenario I have described been all that different? Probably not. And here's the perfect parenting guarantee. Right? Perfect parenting guarantees one thing. To create perfect parents. And, and, and I learned that, by the way. I believe from um, the Bowers, who tended to raise a number of kids. Josh, do you want to come preach part of this sermon? <laughs> but the same would go true because since none of us are perfect, we already know we've blown that from day one. We could make it true for good parenting also. What is good, good parenting to great parenting guarantee to produce? Good parents. Maybe great parents. And you say, well, I, again, I, I don't care about that. <laughs> Just tell me how to make my kids obey. Well, two things. One, God cares a whole lot about it. I already covered that. And two, they're not your kids. As soon as you start to say, in times of desperation probably, how can I make my kids, fill in the blank, behave, listen, obey? How can I make my kids understand how can i make them love and share and be kind how can i make them love god oh we've our perspective is totally off that's not our job god made them and is making them if there's anything that's going to change in them it's not because of you as a parent it's because of god and his grace so now you're hopeless, right? What do I do? What do I do? What am I called to? We're called again as stewards and ambassadors to represent him. That's our job. It's really more of a role. And we clearly see it from his word. To bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Maybe there's a task involved in that. But if what's what's required in all of us as children is for heart change. And since none of us can change another's heart, we better get that perspective right in parenting. That we are creating, I hope, environments 
for our kids to grow up in the Lord, but we trust Him and the Holy Spirit to do the heart change. And we seek to be faithful as children ourselves to a good Father to create those environments. Like a greenhouse, we like that language, create a safe environment as much as possible, although we ultimately can't keep our kids safe either. But can we create rich environments for kids to grow up in? Can we join God in His work by representing Him, representing His love, representing His Word and His will, and then praying deeply that our kids would receive it, that it would grow, and pray against the work of the enemy, that they would be protected? That's our work. What, what Paul goes back to, when Paul goes back to Exodus 20 and the law, he also essentially is going back to Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy 6 is one of the most significant parenting passages in all of Scripture. It's also another pretty famous passage. I'm guessing it'll sound familiar even if you've never read it. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and following. Hear, O Israel, this is the Shema. Hear, listen in Hebrew. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your heart and all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Maybe you know that passage. He moves then into parenting. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house at the dinner table. When you're walking by the way. When you lie down, when you rise, or before bed in the morning. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Now they would wear some interesting tassels and the religious leaders and priests to remind them. You probably do. They ever wear, anyone ever wear a rubber band on your wrist because you need to remember that thing? Maybe you set a reminder in your phone. They didn't have those back then. Put a post-it note on your mirror. That's what this next section is about. It's just triggers of remembrance of God's word and promises. You'll bind them as a sign on your hand. They should be as frontlets between your eyes. Some would actually do that. I think the point was more make them so readily available that you just see them and are reminded of them at all times. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That, that brought to memory when we tore out this middle section of our building and we rebuilt it before we finished the walls on all of the frames and all of the doors. We wrote scriptures and God's promises. Some of you that were here were a part of that. So inside of those walls is God's word and promises written throughout. This is a, 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 one, it was a fun exercise, but two, as you know, if God isn't building this, then what does it matter? We, we labor in vain, but also hearkening back to this very critical passage of, hey, in all that we do, let's be reminded of God's promises and His Word. In that whole passage, what is rule number one? What is rule number one? We have, we have one rule in our family. We say there's one, one rule. There's other guidelines, and we can make a whole lot more rules if we want, but there's really one rule, because if we follow that one rule, we don't need the others. Love God. Love God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. But Jesus, when He was asked what the most important thing is, the most important in all the law, all the commandments, the 500 plus commandments listed in the Old Testament, they tried to trap Him and trick Him. What's the most important? He answered It's this one. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second is like it. Then with that love, love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Really, if you love God, you'll know who He is. You'll come to know Him and trust Him and follow Him. And who God is expresses love to all peoples. So it will just flow out of that first, number one, rule. Love then to another. 
Love to your brother, to your sister, even when they're not deserving. Especially then. When love doesn't feel easy, we love anyway. Because who God is and what He's done. He's loved us when we were least lovable, never wavering, never changing. That's how we're to love. And before we ever get to parenting, before we ever... We're so quick to jump to a list of rules, aren't we? To make it a big, a big list and post it on the wall or... If when our kids forget it, remind them and shout it out, yell it out. Put the list of consequences on the wall. Yeah, put the list of rewards right next to it. We're so good at making lists. But that's just really behavior modification. If my kids want something bad enough, they'll behave for it. If they fear something enough, they'll probably behave for it. I hope I haven't tested that by any means. But that's doing nothing to heart change. If they get what they wanted because they behaved long enough and got you know good enough, it's done nothing to change their heart. They'll go right back to their same sinful, selfish ways as before. But we're about heart change. And that's what God is about. It's what we need most. First, our own. Why do you think the commandment starts with love the Lord your God with all your heart before you ever get to a parenting instruction? Oh, it's so hard and it's so convicting. Thank the Lord that we live under His grace and His mercy. That we can extend that same to our children. If we could come to love God with all our heart, we would know what perfect parenting looks like. If God can control anything and change any behavior in a moment, because He's all sovereign and all powerful, But that's not His way. And He is the Father. What does that tell us? What is His way? His way is first love, pursuit, promise, and then faithfulness to that promise. Consistency over the long haul. Patience. Grace. Mercy. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. This is His way. And we're called to represent Him in all things that we do, especially as we parent and try to become like Him. If a list of rules were enough to change hearts, Jesus would not have had to come. There was already a Bible full of rules, full of the law. If that could change hearts and lives, Jesus need not come. If we could behave our way into heaven, Jesus would not have needed to die. Rules are not enough. Fear is not enough. Rewards are not enough. Although it's not wrong to long for, as we're told, the rewards that only God can give. But they're not enough to change hearts and save us for eternity. That hope is grace and grace alone in Jesus Christ alone. That's what the whole book is about. That's the big picture. I went looking for my Jesus Storybook Bible this morning because I was going to read the introduction. Otherwise, it's a good time of year to begin that. I think our kids' ministry is going to use that. Jenna's going to use that. I love what Sally Lloyd-Jones did in that book. If If you don't have that or haven't used that as kids, at least as one of your supplements to the Scriptures, 
Because her whole goal is to point every story to Jesus. The one big story. So let me read the introduction. I found it. I'll read the introduction out of my notes. She says, Now some people think the Bible is a book of rules. It tells you what you should or shouldn't do. Well, the Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show us how, it shows us how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. Well, the Bible does have some heroes in it. But, as you will soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. And they make some big mistakes. Sometimes on purpose. They get afraid. They run away. At times they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules. It's a book of, or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a faraway country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne and everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves His children and has come to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece of a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you see the beautiful picture. One I thought it was worth reading in the context of parenting and children, maybe as an encouragement to you parents who have young kids, to introduce them to the Scriptures, the story of God in that way. That's what we did, and our kids loved it. Time to come back to it now that they can grasp it at a new level and layer. And maybe all of us need that reminder too. That that's what the whole story is about. Whether we're parenting, one of the most intense things we can do, or whether we're serving in any context, living in a neighborhood, working at a career that's hard, coming alongside extended family to serve or to give care, at a school, a new school maybe especially, or one that you don't feel like you fit in with, no matter what we're doing, where we are, we are to represent God and His story, His love and His grace. I don't think any of you came today trying to, expecting to hear how to be a perfect parent or expecting me to, to give you insight into parenting decisions. Although I'm guessing in this room, if I could tell you how to set your weekly calendar, whether to homeschool or public school or private school, which sports or extracurriculars to do and which ones to say no to, how much screen time to allow, how much social media, how to stop the bickering and the arguing, how to allow certain requests for freedom and when to say no, how to discipline, which things actually make the list of, well, as long as you're under this roof then. And I can't do any of that. I'm happy to talk with you about any of those. But I know what's most needed and what my role is, is to point us all 
to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith and our parenting, to remind us that these kids that we have, if we have them, are not ours, they're His. He loves them more than we ever can. To know that He'll work then for their good and for our good, changing our hearts one day at a time, faithful and enduring for the long haul, never leaving us, no matter what. And because He's already poured out grace and mercy abundantly, we don't need to find that fulfillment in any other thing, especially in our kids, or in becoming the best parent that others admire and want to model their lives after. That just shows a deep brokenness within us that we're still trying to fill in something of the world and not in Jesus Himself of what He's already given. And so I think that's my role. And since my voice hasn't completely given out, but it's close, let me hammer what Paul hammers and then try to land this thing. Remember what God has done. This is chapter 1 of Ephesians. Blessed be God, your Father, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons and daughters. That's what He's already done. He's adopted us. Not because we were lovely, but because He loved us. Not because we were able. That's the whole story. Read through the whole book. God doesn't find able people. Oh, I can use that one. He finds willing people. And He makes them able by His presence and His power. If you're a parent, are you willing? You were at one point. Get back to that place. Be willing and ask for His strength and grace He's already done it. He'll do it again. He loves you that much. He's already redeemed us through the blood of Christ and forgiven every trespass according to the riches of His grace which He has lavished upon us. If we have obtained this inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we were the first to hope in Christ, to the praise of His glory, then in you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. He's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession to the praise of His glory. He's already guaranteed. That's the perfect parenting guarantee. It was tongue-in-cheek earlier. The perfect parenting guarantee is that God the Father is the one true perfect parent and has guaranteed to work with you as fathers and as mothers to raise up these children that He has made into His image to know Him and to love Him more fully. And oh, by the way, He'll use them to grow you and sanctify you as well. You haven't figured that out. You haven't been doing it for very long. So we thank you, God the Father, for giving us this kind of job description. We thank you that you have sustained us just enough. I'm reminded of that in my voice, but I know that extends to us in all that we do. You have sustained us enough. And for that we praise you.
We ask for more. We see the longing and the heart cries of your people throughout Scripture crying out for more. So we know that's part of your heart. You give abundantly. And so there's more we're longing for. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled and satisfied. There is so much more, Lord. We fall so far short in our obedience to you as children to a father. Forgive us, Lord. We fall so short in perfect parenting, probably even in good parenting. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Teach us as parents to be able to go to our kids and ask for forgiveness and confess our sin because we live under your grace and to therefore teach them that they can come to us with anything because your grace is that good. More, better than we could ever imagine. So as we begin a new year, we don't have lofty resolutions. We don't even know our life and what will be. But you've sustained us this day. Give us our daily bread. We pray for tomorrow. We pray for the coming months and year. We pray, mold us and make us into your image. We pray for more, Lord. We're hungry and thirsty. We draw near to you. Now your promise is you will draw near to us. Help us in our need, be it parenting, be it in our marriage, be it in our friendships and relationships, in our workplace, in our community, where you have sent us and commissioned us and planted us. In our deep need, we need more of you, Lord. We bring so little. Use it, Lord, we are willing. Fill us to fullness for your glory. In our joy we pray. In the name of Jesus, our King, who is no longer in the manger, seated on the throne. Amen.